You've only got one heart. You need to take care of it. But every year, millions of people suffer from a variety of conditions that put our life-keeping organ in jeopardy. And now, we have another problem that threatens to cause a different kind of heartbreak. A viral one. Thanks to COVID-19. This week, we're going to examine the effects of SARS-CoV-2 infection on the heart and the cardiovascular system. We'll learn about a new study that's underway to visualize what happens when the virus invades the bloodstream. And as it's Heart Health Awareness Month, we're going to find out how you can keep your heart safe throughout your life. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and I'm going to get your pulse racing with science. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. Nothing is more important to your life than your heart. If it stops, you do too. Thankfully, it is a very resilient organ and can withstand quite a bit of punishment over the course of a life. But sadly, when it comes to an infection like SARS-CoV-2, the cause of COVID-19, the odds can be stacked against getting through unscathed, especially if you've already incurred damage. Based on scientific studies over the last year, people with pre-existing heart conditions can be up to four times more likely to die from the virus than patients with no underlying conditions. If you have high blood pressure, you're two and a half times more likely to die. But the real kicker is that 51%, over half of those who have a cardiac problem while in hospital, are going to die. Researchers continue to look for the reasons behind this incredibly high risk to heart health, and my guest this week is one of them. He's Ian Patterson, and he is a professor in the Department of Medicine in the Division of Cardiology at the Faculty of Medicine and Dentistry at the University of Alberta. He's a cardiac researcher who has undertaken a clinical study to examine the effects of COVID-19 on the heart using a technique we may have heard of, but don't entirely understand. Magnetic resonance imaging, better known as MRI. He's currently enrolling patients in his new study called the Multi-Organ Imaging with Serial Testing in COVID-19 Infected Patients, better known as MOIST. We'll get into that later. First, I need to ask one question that appears to be on everybody's mind. What is the concern about an individual's cardiovascular health and COVID-19 infection? Patients with COVID-19, if they've had a history of heart disease or risk factors for heart disease, uh, they seem to be at higher risk for having a worse outcome. We're, we're quite concerned about that. There also is some evidence that COVID-19 directly affects the heart and uh, puts people at risk, higher risk for a heart attack and a damage uh, to the heart muscle itself. So as a community, we've become quite concerned about the potential impact uh, of this infection on the heart and patients with heart disease. What is it that the COVID-19 virus, SARS-CoV-2, seems to be doing that's putting people with cardiovascular comorbidities or, or pre-existing conditions at a higher risk? We don't fully know, but there's a few ways that COVID-19 can affect the heart and the cardiovascular system. COVID, COVID-19 seems to cause diffuse inflammatory response in some individuals. So people become febrile, their immune system gets revved up in their body. One of the changes is it can affect uh, the endothelium 
which are cells that line the blood vessels and can actually make people more at risk for having clots. And that can actually put people at higher risk for having a heart attack. One of the other mechanisms that COVID-19 can affect the heart is it gets into the heart cell and can directly damage the muscle uh, and the electrical system of the heart. And, uh, and so that's another potential mechanism that people are affected. They can have what's called myocarditis. We don't fully understand or know how common this is, but it's, it's one of the areas that I'm specifically interested in learning more about and better understanding. So this really does sound like a double-edged sword. It's not just simply a person who has a pre-existing condition is at higher risk. It seems like COVID-19 in general can potentially have problems when it comes to our cardiovascular health, even if you happen to be healthy beforehand. That's right. The, the ACE2 protein or ACE2 receptor, it's, everybody has this. It's, uh, it's actually, it's a relatively new uh, molecule that we're learning more about. And it's, it's actually something that we think helps um, reduce the damage uh, caused by inflammation. So it's, it's sort of one of the good, good guys, if you will, uh, in our body. Unfortunately, though, it's also the means by which COVID-19 gets into our cells and disrupts things. It appears that the people with pre-existing heart disease and risk factors for heart disease, such as high blood pressure and diabetes, they seem to be more at risk for having um, ill effects from the virus than, than healthier people. But you're right that even healthy people, in theory, uh, could be affected by, uh, by COVID-19 with uh, damage to the heart. Now, you're talking about a protein called ACE2, uh, angiotensin converting enzyme 2. But most of us would probably be familiar with just ACE, angiotensin converting enzyme. I guess like one or something like that. What, what's the difference between them? Do, do we know in terms of cardiovascular health? Yeah, so we certainly, you're right that we would know more about the ACE1 or most commonly referred to as ACE, angioconverting enzyme. That's a molecule that plays a role in something called the renin angiotensin system. And that's a system in our body that helps regulate blood pressure, um, kidney function, and, and a whole host of other things. Uh, it's sort of one of the stress hormone pathways. ACE1 uh, converts angiotensin uh, 1 to angiotensin 2. ACE2, though, I would view that as a way of downregulating that system. So if that system, the RAS, or uh, renin angiotensin system, is revved up, uh, ACE2 could be viewed sort of as a brakes for that system. And so there's some cases where we want that system revved up and other cases where we want to apply the brakes. During a severe illness, uh, such as COVID-19, that's a, a time where we want to, would apply the brakes uh, more than revving it up. Now, you just mentioned angiotensin 2, and in immunology, it's, it's a huge problem whenever you have too much angiotensin 2, because that could lead to inflammation pretty much throughout your body. And, and of course, that's not something that you want. If ACE2 is really sort of the opposite end of a seesaw with angiotensin 2 or ACE, if we're losing that protein while we're having an infection with COVID-19, that could potentially spell really nasty problems, not just for the heart, but just pretty much the entire blood system. 
Yeah, we think so. I mean, we're obviously our knowledge about ACE2 is still uh, evolving, as is our knowledge of COVID-19. But you're right that in theory, uh, if we had lower amounts of ACE2, we would potentially be missing um, part of our, our pathways for uh, downregulating or blocking this severe inflammatory response to COVID-19. Keep in mind, though, ACE2 is also a receptor So paradoxically, if you have more ACE2 being expressed on your cells, that could be an easier way for the virus to get in to to the host and infect them. So so when we talk about ACE2, we're not only talking about levels in the blood, but we're also talking about uh, levels expressed on the cells as well. Uh, That that sounds like a bit of a catch-22. Yeah, that's, that's right. I think we're still learning about what effects COVID has on ACE2. There actually are studies which are looking at also what are the effects of ACE inhibitors, which is a commonly used drug to treat heart disease and high blood pressure. There was some uh, press initially where ACE inhibitors could be uh, actually harmful for patients with COVID-19 because they thought it was going to affect ACE2 levels in a negative way. There was some uh, preclinical data, uh, some animal data, suggesting that um, ACE inhibitors lower ACE2 levels in the blood, but then that hasn't really borne out so far in uh, in clinical studies of COVID-19 when they've looked at patients who are on ACE inhibitors. They've actually not had worse outcomes uh, from COVID-19. And in fact, there's one Canadian study that's just about to get started um, where they think being on an ACE inhibitor or started on an ACE inhibitor will actually have beneficial effects in terms of outcomes from COVID-19. So again, we're still in the process of evaluating potential beneficial effects of, of ACE inhibitors as they relate to ACE2 and, and uh, good outcomes for patients. ACE numbers don't seem to be harmful, which is good news for patients. All of this information is coming out through clinical trials, and you yourself are actually involved in a clinical trial looking at the effect of COVID-19 and the heart. I'm wondering if you can provide us with a little perspective as to what made you go in this direction and what you're hoping to find. Some of my background is in imaging. I have uh, specialized training in using uh, something called MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, which is uh, basically a very powerful magnet that allows us to get very detailed pictures of the body. I've been using this imaging tool now for about 15 years in Edmonton to study uh, different types of heart disease, so studying uh, patients with inflammation of the heart, patients with weakness of the heart, to learn more about how various diseases affects people's cardiovascular health. In parallel, we've actually been now um, using this same MRI to better understand outside the heart what's going on. So we've been imaging the lungs uh, and brain, and these are things we've been interested in in the last couple of years. So When COVID-19 surfaced nine months ago or 10 months ago now, and we we realized how how this illness was affecting the whole body, causing apparently damage to the brain, the heart, the lungs, 
I started talking to some of my colleagues who've been helping me doing this research. And we said, hey, wait a second, wouldn't MRI be a good test? Because it provides so much detailed information, not just of the heart, but the brain, the lungs, we would be able to use this test to understand the effects that are happening all throughout the body from COVID-19. So so this is sort of how we came up with this idea early on in the summer of 2020. The the name MOIST stands for multi-organ imaging with serial testing. A little bit of a play on words because uh, some of you may remember early on during the pandemic, uh, Justin Trudeau uh, famously advised uh, Canadians not to speak moistly. So we thought it was a bit of a funny play on words. We've been recruiting patients in Edmonton and and really throughout Alberta. We've had patients come from uh, as far away as Calgary and as well as northern Alberta have come uh, to participate in our study. We've achieved so far 25% of our recruitment. We're hoping to recruit 200 patients. So we have about 50 to 60 patients so far. Now, you are in Edmonton, and this is going to be for Albertans. But if anybody wants to learn more about the MOIST study just in general, is there a site that they could go to? We have some information about our study on the University of Alberta website. And there's also a website called Be the Cure. And people can find information about our study there. Once they're linked to those uh, two websites, there is information about how to contact us if they had other questions about our study. We'd be happy to reach out to people and uh, provide any information about the study. This is, um, I think, one of the larger ones that I know of in Canada. Yeah, we'd be happy to help uh, whoever um, is interested to contact us. And having been involved in clinical myself, it's also people who don't have cardiovascular conditions that should also find out more information because you always want to make sure that you have that control group. And sometimes they're actually harder to recruit than the people that you're trying to look at specifically. Yeah, that's a good point. So for our study, we have a couple of control groups, actually. So we're going to have a group of individuals who did not have COVID-19 that are otherwise healthy. We also are going to have um, uh, patients who who had COVID-19 that uh, are relatively asymptomatic or who have had very minimal symptoms. And then we're going to also have patients who have had more severe illness, who are hospitalized, potentially in ICU. So we really want to understand the full spectrum of the disease, people who were seriously affected, people who were minimally affected, and also people who were not affected at all and, and try to get a, an understanding, is there, is there a difference? What is the difference uh, when we look uh, at doing tests on these patients? Uh, you know, are there, are there long-term uh, consequences from, from this uh, disease? As I said earlier, the risks for life-threatening conditions with COVID-19 occur if damage to the cardiovascular system has already been sustained. This shows the importance of heart health throughout our lives. The problem is that much as you've heard, heart disease really is silent. There's no way to know without having regular visits to your doctor and making sure that you've had that discussion about cardiovascular health. I, for one, know that a problem can strike at any time and land anyone, no matter how healthy they may appear to be, in the critical care unit or worse. Trust me, 
no one ever wants to go through that. And don't forget your loved ones and the impact it may have on them. Ian Patterson is not only a researcher, but also a cardiologist, and regularly sees patients in his practice. He's going to share some of his insights with us now, and provide some details I'm sure you've never heard before. This is important. Your life may depend on it. What are the most common types of heart attacks? And what are the signs that someone is having one? Well, so a heart attack can mean different things. But for me, the medical term is myocardial infarction. There are two types of myocardial infarction. There's something called uh, ST elevation myocardial infarction and uh, non-ST elevation myocardial infarction. That just basically refers to uh, the pattern that we see uh, on an electrocardiogram. Uh, which is an electrical recording of the heart. And so depending on the type of heart attack someone is having, uh, that helps us decide what are the most appropriate therapies for uh, that person at the time that they're having their heart attack. The other question, what are the signs of a heart attack? Well, it actually can be different uh, for different individuals, but the, the classic signs of a heart attack are central chest discomfort. So in the center of your chest, you have what feels, people have described it as a weight on the chest or a squeezing sensation. And uh, sometimes that discomfort can radiate up to the jaw or into the shoulders or into the back. And uh, sometimes people also feel uh, unwell. They're they're sweating uh, during these episodes and have some shortness of breath as well. So those would be sort of the the classic symptoms of somebody having a heart attack. We do know that there is a difference between men and women when it comes to the feelings that they have when it's a heart attack. Um, You know, we just had a show on the difference of biological sex with respect to COVID infection. And I'm kind of curious, do we have any specifics that we can share that outline the difference between men and women or are we still more or less going with the the ones that you just discussed? There are big differences between men and women also with how they manifest heart disease uh, and how they respond to treatments for heart disease. Uh, uh, So women don't oftentimes will not have the classic symptoms uh, associated with angina, which is a medical term for chest pain caused by uh, inadequate blood flow to the heart. And uh, uh, so they will often not have the central chest pressure that I just described to you. They often will have more subtle symptoms. So they may only have, for example, shortness of breath or have discomfort that's not a pressure type discomfort. Maybe it'll be more of a sharp pain. So in women, we need to have, in many respects, sort of a higher index of suspicion. That seems to be the case if they're women with diabetes. They, they really can have not classical features of heart-related chest pains. The other difference between men and women is in their response to treatments. Women tend to have worse outcomes for heart disease. So we're still understanding why that is, but some of it may relate to uh, some of their comorbidities. So women with heart disease, the, uh, the prevalence of diabetes seems to be higher. Um, and we know diabetics in general uh, tend to have 
higher disease burden, they tend to have more uh, buildup of cholesterol in their arteries. And women also tend to have uh, smaller arteries than men. And so they don't uh, have as good outcomes with our interventions. And those interventions would include um, getting something called an angioplasty, where we use a balloon to open up arteries, uh, as well as bypass surgery, where we do open heart surgery to put uh, new channels, uh, veins, and arteries to go around the blockages and bypass the blockages. Also, stents, uh, they use those as well, if I'm correct. Yeah, so stent is uh, a scaffold, a metal scaffold that we put in the arteries during an angioplasty. And that's something that uh, becomes part of the wall of the vessel of your artery and helps maintain the artery open. So when I talk about an angioplasty, they're also uh, getting a stent 99% of the time. So um, those two things are synonymous. Trying to put a stent in a smaller size vessel can be more difficult and challenging. And in a really small vessel, we would be more concerned uh, about the potential for a clotting to occur if the vessel was really small and you were trying to fit a stent in there. So, so yeah, um, women, because they have smaller blood vessels, they would still get stents. But, um, you know, if the vessel was very small, we would maybe only be able to do an angioplasty. You mentioned the fact that people will get medications to be able to help them with respect to their heart health. You know, we always hear about people having blood thinners, especially when they've had something like an angioplasty and a stent is put in. What are the medications that really are common when it comes to people who have heart disease? And uh, if, if you could let us know, you know what's the function for, for those? Absolutely. So, so patients with heart disease, and when we're talking about heart disease, we'll, we'll stick specifically to patients who have coronary artery disease or have had heart attacks. So blood thinners, you mentioned, and the most common and, and oldest one is aspirin. And uh, that's a medication which if you've had a heart attack and, and you take aspirin after your heart attack, it reduces your risk of another heart attack by probably about 30%. So that, that's quite a significant number. Another staple of our treatment after a heart attack are cholesterol-lowering medications. The most common is a group of medications called statins. And uh, those lower LDL cholesterol, which some people refer to as the bad cholesterol. Cholesterol has largely been an instigator in coronary artery disease. It it's, can build up in the wall of your blood vessel and ultimately contribute to that vessel being blocked and causing a heart attack. We're giving these medications to lower cholesterol and hopefully stall or reverse some of the buildup of cholesterol plaque in the in the arteries. Statin therapies, so cholesterol-lowering drugs, also have been associated with about a 30% reduction in your risk of having another heart attack um, in, a, in addition to the aspirin. And then other treatments that we give, um, so earlier on we discussed uh, about ACE inhibitors. That's a medication which lowers blood pressure and also uh, helps the heart to heal after a heart attack. Sometimes people may uh, actually paradoxically have more damage to their heart in the weeks after a heart attack as they recover. And an ACE inhibitor helps good healing to occur so that there is not this additional damage going on. 
Uh, same thing for another class of medications called beta blockers. So that's a medication which locks adrenaline. Adrenaline in, uh, is common uh, for it to build up in the body after a heart attack. And um, it can cause arrhythmias and cause the heart to, to weaken. And so beta blockers is a way of sort of applying the brakes on this stress hormone, adrenaline. And so that beta blockers is another commonly used medication uh, for, for patients with coronary artery disease uh, after they've had a heart attack. Those would be sort of our main uh, treatments that most patients would be on after, uh, after having heart disease. Now, with respect to these medications, it wouldn't be uncommon to have some of these before you have a cardiac event if it's caught early enough. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Some of our patients who come in with their uh, heart attack are already on these medications. And it's important for your audience to know uh, that, unfortunately, we do not have a cure for coronary artery disease. So all of these treatments that we're talking about are uh, reducing the risk of heart disease, but they're not eliminating that risk. Someone who has had a previous heart attack, they're at, still at significant risk in their lifetime that it could happen again. Because of that, some of the patients that we see in the hospital with a heart attack are people that have already had a heart attack. So in, in, under these uh, circumstances, we, we still can have other medications that we use. Sometimes we adjust the pills that they're already on and we can add other blood thinners to the mix to help things. And, you know, oftentimes people who come in with their heart attack, uh, they have ongoing risk factors for heart disease that need to be addressed. So they may have high blood pressure that could be better controlled. Uh, they may unfortunately still smoke and we need to... Um, uh, address that with them because quitting smoking is actually the the single best intervention someone can do for themselves because quitting smoking you lower your risk of a subsequent heart attack by 50 percent which i mentioned uh earlier so that's better than um, the cholesterol drug or the or the aspirin so that's the single best thing uh, a person should do they should do all of these things obviously but smoking is a very important risk factor that now, unfortunately, we sometimes need to address a second or third time with patients. Is it best to make a call, whether it be 911 or to a clinic, uh, or maybe even just walk into the emergency room? Or do you want anybody to sort of, you know, maybe second guess, maybe they're they're thinking it's gas or, or maybe it's indigestion or something along those lines? No, we would encourage people, especially if people have risk factors for heart disease who develop these symptoms. So you know, anybody over the age of 45 or 50, if, they, if they're having these symptoms or if you have high blood pressure or diabetes or a smoker uh, or high cholesterol, if you have these symptoms, you should have a high index of suspicion that this could be heart-related symptoms. So you should be uh, definitely seeking uh, medical assistance. Is there anything else that you can suggest to the audience to help them uh, maintain good heart health uh, or if they do have some form of uh, cardiovascular disease in process, you know, to, to, to help to keep themselves maintained so that they don't end up uh, in the emergency room or, or worse? Absolutely. So generally speaking, uh, we advocate for people to have healthy lifestyles. 
what that means is we're asking people to uh, perform at least 30 minutes a day of moderate physical activity. And for many people that would simply involve going for uh, a brisk walk or going for a walk, which I grant is potentially more difficult in winter and during COVID. Uh, but, you know, I speak to a lot of patients and many people are quite inventive. They're, they're walking in their apartment complexes, in some cases in their garage complex, um, just to try to get maintain some level of physical activity. And then, you know, diet is also another important component to uh, heart health and maintaining uh, active uh, and, and, and good cardiovascular risk profile. And so there we would advocate for people to be conscious of how much salt they take in their diet, trying to keep it under two grams a day. And, and also I usually advocate for people to uh, increase the amount of fruits and vegetables in their diet. And the new Canada or latest Canada food guide recommends that uh, when you're looking at your plate in front of you, at least half of your plate should be fruits and vegetables and uh, a quarter of the plate protein and a quarter of the plate should be whole grains. And I, I think, you know, during COVID people have been eating out less, which is actually a good thing uh, from a heart health uh, standpoint and preparing their own meals uh, using fresh uh, foods and I think if this could be one uh, good legacy of COVID that people continue, that, that would be great. That takes us to the end of the discussion. But I'm sure we haven't answered all of your questions about COVID-19 in the heart or cardiovascular health questions in general. So ask me by tweeting me at JATetro or emailing me at thegermguy at gmail.com. You can also head to speakpipe.com slash sass and post your question there. We'll take several of them and give you the answers next week. In the meantime, for Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It really does help us spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to Ian Patterson and the Moist Study. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Deal of Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Greg Schott. Have a great week. Stay safe. And as always, make sure to show them some sass.